Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. I'm here today with Chris and Warren, and we've just spent some time with two wonderful guests that you'll see later on in the show, Martina Gorm and Tony Redmond. And Absolute legends. Legends of Absolute our legends. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting show. And what we've wanted to do on the show is to have differing viewpoints on um, the same topics. And going to be honest, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. But what we did have is we had some really deep insight from two incredibly different people looking at the world in an incredibly different way. And on, on some, well, some interesting topics. Yeah. Experts in the field, um, years of experience, and I think topics that have been interesting and somewhat controversial, right? So if we think about the rate of change, I think that is something that comes up um, with mm. every customer conversation I have these days. Uh, it comes up on almost every show that we have, right? Is is how fast is too fast? Like we know you got to continue to innovate. We, we understand that people want to see that constant innovation Microsoft are, are just kind of running with it, right? And, and, it, and as Tony mentioned in the show, it's not the, the heyday of, of service packs and feature updates anymore, right? These things are happening weekly. Um, but how fast is too fast? How much is too much, right? And, and, and are we ever going to see that, 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 that tipping point where even the most agile and most advanced organizations can no longer keep up? So I think that was a great topic to just to get kind of thoughts on. And then, you know, security and compliance, something that is very topical. And top of mind right now uh, and of course microsoft viva which you know continues to be something um generating a buzz and that a lot of folks are talking about uh, either in a in a you know good positive way or in a just confused way right so really really good conversation enjoy the show hello and welcome to another episode of the cloud architects podcast um, we have some additional guests today or multiple guests today. And I think this is a very interesting episode that I'm super excited about. And we spoke to Martina Graham a little while ago. And one of the topics that came up during that conversation was, was Viva. Um, and really, I think what that's done is it's prompted a lot of uh, additional questions, right? Uh, double clicking, if you will, in the Microsoft language uh, into that topic to see, you know, uh, what, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and, and some of the confusion around Viva. Um, also joined by Tony Redmond, uh, absolute legend. Uh, welcome back, Tony. We love having you, and it's it's great to have you back for the second or third time. So uh, always good to see you. Um, and of course, Warren and Nick, the usual characters are here too. So uh, we're really looking forward to a great episode. Right, it's all got to go downhill from here. It seems that way. Progressively worse. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should yeah. start with, with with your favorite thing at the moment. What 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 gets you up in the morning? You know, other than coffee, what gets you up in the morning, Tony? And then Martina after. Uh, you know, there's nothing particular. I just keep on uh, trying to churn through all of the changes that are constantly being made. I mean, every day I get up, have a look at the message center, and okay, there's another bunch of changes. Uh, I think an interesting one I just saw this morning. Um, is the fact that they're changing uh, whiteboard storage away from uh, from Azure to OneDrive for business and uh, and SharePoint, which I think is a really great change. I think it's 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 uh, so sensible to use the storage available inside uh, OneDrive and SharePoint 
for files like whiteboard. And it's the same type of change that they're making for uh, stream that's going on at the moment. And in fact, the new fluid, the new live uh, components, they're also in, in OneDrive. So it just makes sense to use this general purpose storage, uh, which is well understood by so many applications. It's available for backup. It makes the files e-discoverable. They're available for other compliance like retention processing. It's just a really, really great change. So that was, uh, you know, that's what I do. I just look at all these changes are coming through and try and make sense of them and then maybe even write about what I think about it. And for you, Martina? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So currently what keeps me busy is all stuff around security and compliance within Microsoft 365. So because I see a lot of organizations struggling with the features, with things which are new, how to develop a governance policy around, around it and how to stay secure and compliant with that. And this is currently most of my day when working with Microsoft 365, more going into security and compliance. And then we have, of course, other services like, and Tony mentioned it with the message center, you see a lot of topics coming and they are not coming for you, for administrators to turn them off without asking the users. They are here for the users and they make probably only sense for a user that they said, oh, I can now um, stream teams to LinkedIn, to YouTube, have live messaging and so on and have that now new features in, in their environment as well. And this is kind of exciting because you also see which of the product groups is currently working by the amount of messages you get there from SharePoint team, from the Teams team, and so on. And I like that as well because it keeps us busy and it also keeps users excited. And sometimes it keeps user overwhelmed with new features. And they said, can you just turn everything off because I need to work and get my work done. So I, think I was about to, to ask you, Martina, how many users do you know that wake up in the morning excited about a feature that comes out of the Office 365 portal versus they just want to get on with their spreadsheet and their Word document and their Teams calls? So I think 80% of the users just want to get their work done. They go into the office or into their home office in their remote office and said, okay, I work with my Excel sheet the whole day. And in the evening, I close my, the lid and everything is fine. And on the other side, you see a lot of people collaborating where they said, I can't work with teams if I do not have breakout rooms for whatever reason. And that means it's a useful feature for that set of people when they wait for that. And they said, okay, now I can organize a webinar. I can group the amount of people I have now in a remote meeting and so on. So it's not an either or question. It's just find the right people for the right functionalities. And I see that Microsoft is listening a lot on features which are present in other products or in demands from users when they said, I need that, otherwise I will move away and do something else. So, 
So the, the question that I was going to ask here is, is, Martina, you kind of expanded, I think, a little bit on what Tony said, right, is you kind of wake up in the morning and it is pretty much a daily thing now looking at mm -hmm. new stuff, new features. I mean, are we getting to that point where too much is too, like it's too much change? Because you have, you know, so your stat of 80% 80, 80 of users who just want to get on, I think that's, 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 that's pretty accurate. But if you think about the administrators as well, who are now constantly kind of trying to get ahead of all of these changes. We've talked, I think, a lot about this on this show about staying ahead of the change and, and, and a, an organization's culture and willingness to adopt those changes, right? But I mean, how much is too much? Are we gonna to get to a point where we just, you know, it doesn't matter how agile you are as a business, you're still gonna to struggle to, to keep ahead? I think that everyone struggles with too much change and too much new functionality. And it starts with users and it ends up with administrators because I work a lot with companies who do not have enough people to manage everything. And it, it was a tendency to turn features off upfront, to check them later. And I saw a lot that that later didn't happen ever. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, I think it's a balance between new functionality each week and a lot of new functionality in a month. And I think users can handle it. But it's, you see that sometimes you have new features and people discover them six months later because it wasn't important for them. But when they need it, it's here. And this is also an advantage for them. That's a good point. I I never considered that. That's something you don't really need it. Know that you need it until you need it, right? But then it's there. But yeah. I mean, Tony, do you, I mean, do you think this is potentially also a, um, a demographic, like an age thing within the within um, the industry? You know, I, it's a legit question, right? We spoke with uh, Stephen L. Rose a couple of weeks ago, and one of the interesting topics or. or, or facts that he mentioned on, on our during our conversation was that we now have multiple generations of folks in the workforce, right? And and like it must be a difficult balance to try and find um or to try and find that balance between catering to the different needs of different mm -hmm. age groups. Um I'm sure that you know the younger generation are probably a lot they expect the new new features every week. Whereas you know some folks um like the way they work and they don't want constant change and don't move my cheese and uh, you know what i mean so and and i mean you have to be able to strike that balance at some point and who's who, who needs to strike that balance is it a microsoft balance is it an organizational balance like where is it well one of the thing i have long argued with microsoft senior executives is that um they need a customer advocate for things like Office 365. And, and a customer advocate is somebody who works across the different engineering groups to throttle back some of the more outrageous plans that they have. Uh, I mean, there is this stress, if you will, this strain that exists in the system where you have the engineers want to get stuff shipped you have managers who want to get stuff shipped and they're you know it's all goal driven people have targets they want to meet etc etc and, and and perhaps uh 
another way of putting it is they want to see the result of their work out there. But, you know, in some cases, it is just to meet a goal. You see that, for example, at the end of towards the end of the Microsoft fiscal year on June the 30th, uh, an awful lot of features get shipped in a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, so there is this dichotomy between wanting to get stuff shipped and the customer saying, hold on, can we actually uh, consume what you're giving to us? Plus the lack of quality that you see sometimes, the lack of uh, readiness for prime time that you see. Uh, which makes me feel that you do need somebody inside Microsoft to stand enough for customers to say, hold on, this isn't ready to go yet. We, we're not synchronized enough across, um, we're not synchronized enough across the different parts of Office 365. We're not even synchronized enough across what's now called OD, ODSP, which is OneDrive, SharePoint, and Teams. You know, uh, you, you see features appearing which are not complete. There are, they're waiting for other bits to ship. And I sometimes think, wouldn't it be so much better if you waited until everything was ready, everything was fully tested, everything was feature complete, and then you made it available instead of shipping things out so that people see have radically different experiences from one week to another or from one tenant to another or from one geography to another in a multi-geo environment. It just seems that, they're doing things wrong. And another indication of why I think that they're doing things wrong is if you look at the number of features that are uh, delayed, they make a prediction about a feature to say, yeah, we're going to ship this at the end of September. And then the end of September comes around and it's the end of October or it's the end of November. And it says to yourself, come on, guys, look, let's get coordination better. Let's improve your communication. Let's make sure that you, you deliver something that's really uh, ready for prime time because you're not under competitive pressure anymore. Uh, Google is not a competitor as, a, as it was, say, seven or eight years ago. Uh, so what's, your, what's the competition that's forcing you to push this stuff out when it's just not ready? And I have never really got good answers to those questions. But it's definitely something that I've long held the view that somebody needs to be the voice of the customer within Microsoft to stop engineering groups shipping stuff that is immature, underprepared, buggy, incomplete, badly documented. Uh, you know, it's just it's just wrong the way things work today. You know, I think for the longest time, that was not necessarily the role, but that was the responsibility that the MVP community and the master community took, right? If you took, take, go back to the exchange days when we had an exchange product group um, and we would have sessions with that group and they would talk to us about new things they're thinking about and we'd be able to say, well, feedback is maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe you need to reconsider that. I mean, you know, there were a lot of very vocal voices in that community about, some of the the ideas right some of them were rolled back yep. some of them never made it through i feel like some of that is lost today with the way microsoft has reorganized itself and 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 perhaps um the feedback mechanisms back into those product groups well i think you're you're looking back to the to a golden period when there was uh, service packs and cumulative updates and that sort of thing sure it, it, it is life is different in the cloud and there's definitely uh, i a faster pace of change. And I, I wouldn't like to take that away. But 
I just want it to be more control. I, I want people to get quality. And, and I don't. I just don't see quality today in, in the software development and delivery process at times. And, and that's upsetting. Hey, it keeps me in a job. I keep on documenting all the gaps. But it, that is, that's not the right way to deliver software to people, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I, I think Sorry for I mean, the dead, being, being the downer here. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you expected me to say that kind of thing, but you know, that's, that's, that's just the yeah. way I feel. It's, it's, it would be better if I it think, was better. I think the idea of a customer advocate, I think I really like that idea. I've, I, you know, I, we've long since promoted the idea of, you know, product champions within organizations. And this is sort of the other side of that fence. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Interestingly enough, to, I mean, to your point, um, I've recently been following a bunch of news about Windows 10 and just Windows generally. And Windows 365, come on, we have to get something on that. No, 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 well, we, can get to, we can get to Windows. I'm not talking marketing here. I'm talking about like, um, to Tony's point of, of potentially half-baked or not quite ready for release things, right? There's, there's been a lot um, lately on the Windows side as well, where there've been bugs and, and, and really bad ones and ones that have been around for a very long time and, and stuff like that. So I don't think this is necessarily isolated to the M365 environment that we typically talk about, but you know, so to that point, um, perhaps there is a, a bit of thinking to be done or, or you know, some improvements that can be made to the way things are being released and making sure they're released when they're ready to be released. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it ticks me off when I hear Microsoft marketing people get up at conferences and talk about, well, superpowers. Superpowers should be just banned as a description for software, straight out. Software does not have superpowers. Software gets work done, never has superpowers, end of. But they talk about all this new functionality that's coming and you're saying, okay, could you just deliver what's there right now competently and, and working well? And then we'll talk about the new stuff. Could we not just take three months out and get it done? And that, that, that uh, so anyway, it, it's, just, it's just part of my grumpy old man kind of view of the world. But I don't think, it's, I, I don't think it, this is, uh, this is um, uh, an age-related thing to argue against myself, because I'll tell you, um, people uh, who are younger, much younger than me, and I have um, kids working in the software industry, um, they get as ticked off as I do about low-quality software, where errors appear where they shouldn't appear, where documentation is incomplete, where errors pop up for no good reason. I, I mean, a classic example of this Classic example is the is the recent redesign of the GUI for content searches and query discovery in the compliance center. Now, I I wouldn't argue that the previous GUI was what did not need some change. It did. It was it was aging and fraying at the at the edges. But that's no excuse to go then and deliver software which is slower, buggier, and less functional than what was there before. And, and, and that just, that's just crazy stuff when you think about it for a part of Microsoft 365, which is now nearly six years old. You know, six years old, you've been working on software for six years. You should be 
getting more performance, you should be adding more functionality, you should have fewer bugs, and your GUI should be snappy, smart, and accurate. And currently, Core Discovery or content searches in a compliance center doesn't come up to any of those standards. So you've got to ask yourself, why does this happen? And but what think, can be done to improve to it? Another question there, Tony, is do you think that it's everyone? Because, look, all things considered, docs.microsoft.com compared to another software vendor, let's say SAP, let's say SUS Linux, let's say SLES, whatever it is, um, you know, if we have to put them all in a big pot, and we say, okay, mm -hmm. well, how good is Microsoft's documentation compared to XYZ? And how good is Microsoft's cloud compared to ABC's? And we have to put them in a big pot. Is it all that bad? Or is Microsoft worse? Or do you know what I mean? Because perhaps maybe it's yeah. the right change that causes them to do this. I, oh, I do think it's the rate of change. I think it's just change upon change upon change. You, you go and talk to some of the document folks. I'll come back to that in a moment. But when you go and talk to the document folks, you understand just what pressure they're under. And it's, it is horrendous. Now, in saying that, I think Microsoft's documentation is so much better today than it was in the past. Mm. There is absolutely no doubt about that. It is much, much, much better. But where I think uh, it suffers is that because the pressure is there to keep up with change, the documentation folks, the writers, are forced to um, just focus on very narrow descriptions. And you know they, they'll write about a feature in Teams or a feature in OneDrive or a feature in Exchange, and they'll never think about the overall integration of that feature and how people would use it in the average working day where that feature might interact with uh, two other workloads like Microsoft 365 Groups or Planner. They, they, do, they don't think about that kind of thing. And I'm pretty sure that's because the pressure is to just get the documentation done for the feature inside the guardrails, if you will, of the feature as designed by the program manager in charge of the feature and, and delivered by the engineers who, who wrote the code. And that's it. So while I, while I think Microsoft documentation is much better, and it stands the test against any other documentation that's out there. I haven't seen anything that's better. It's, um, it's uh, not as good as it could be. And I think it's just purely and simply because of the rate of change. I mean, how do you guys deal with all of the change? How do you keep up to speed with, you know, 42 different things that have happened this month or last month, let's say in, in July uh, with, uh, you know, stuff, fundamental things happening in Teams, in Azure AD, in the Microsoft Graph, in Exchange, uh, in SharePoint and OneDrive. It's uh, just very difficult, isn't it? Especially, especially difficult when you're working when you work on long-term projects that focus on one particular area, right? Mm. So like right. if you're working with customers that are doing different things every week, that's one, one, one way of doing it. But when you, when you have a project that lasts three months and you're only working on one specific component of M365, then you tend to lose track of everything else that's happening. Mm. Um, it is definitely difficult. 
um, your book does help, right? Uh, just to, to plug the book, just it, it makes it, it does make it easier. I'm not, you know, but <laughs> but that's because of all of the, the effort that you put in and having to wake up every morning and do this, right? Well, that so that's because the compliment, by the way, heard of the entire writing team. Thank you, thank you. But I will say it's not just the entire writing team. I'd, I'd actually like to <laughs> give it the question a little bit. Um, and I, I want to take one of the, the, the frustrations that I have where some of the components of Office 365 are fantastic and some of them are okay or okay enough. And some of them that I've written about, I've just been extensively frustrated, for example, about the, the terrible quarantine experience that we have. And with that, looking at what's available in the competitor landscape, and, and I want to pivot this towards you, Martina, and then come back to, to, to Tony for some perspective. When we look at things like security compliance, and this is a, a reason why people will go to court and need um, accurate tools to create and find and discover an, an accurate legal discovery of something. Do you think that what we have in Office 365 is good enough? Or do you think that we have something that's truly world-class compared to what's available in the third-party landscape? I wouldn't make an assumption based on technical functionality. I would make an assumption on maturity of the individual organization which uses the tools. Because you can work with customers who said, okay, I do not have any clue what e-discovery is. We do not need data classification. We do not need anything around that. And then they have a security issue. And then suddenly they need all of that and throw a lot of money on that. And I think it's very important to have an awareness what you want to accomplish and then use the right tool for the thing you want to solve and, and the problem you want to solve. Because otherwise you are just going into a feature comparison and do feature things from a very technical perspective. And they said, I can't use data classification if I do not have endpoint protection and if I do not have this and that, and then now that third party tool has exactly that single point I'm looking for. And then you are in a selling environment where you are comparing features and functionality and you lose track on the goal you want to accomplish. So maybe it's just single-sided, but when, when I look at that, there are a ton of very good third-party tools to solve everything. But what I see is customers need to use them and not thinking I buy this and that would solve that problem, that specific problem and all my other problems remain unsolved. So I try to find a unified view from a compliance perspective on the whole situation and what they need to solve. I think that's a very good point because I think a lot of third 
party vendors are using, they use their marketing teams love to drive home the, the feature matrix, right? We have this thing that Microsoft can't do, but for many organizations, that one thing, that little tick box um, may not be something they need right away. It may not be something exactly. that is. And, and so I, I do think that's a good point is understanding what it is you're looking to achieve first before making a decision about how you're going to deploy. Um, mm. so. Tony, do you think to pivot on that, if you were a discovery officer today and you were tasked with having to discover information and you had an, an E3 SKU, do you think you'd be able to do your job or would you necessarily feel that you need to go to the third party landscape to find something to just to find your bits? Well, I have done e-discovery investigations, complex ones with E3. Uh, there's no doubt it can be done. And one of the reasons why it can be done is that a lot of communications are actually covered by uh, Microsoft Search. They're in indexes. And therefore, if the participants, we'll, put, we'll call it like that, the target of the investigation have communicated in Teams, in email, in SharePoint, whatever, then that information is going to be available and you can track it. Um, and that, I think, is the biggest advantage that Office 365 has, mm. that so much of the communication that people are likely to use when discussing some behavior that is problematic, let's put it like that, uh, might be captured by uh, Office 365. And, and some of the some of the things that some of the recent changes like uh, support for sensitivity labels for for decryption so that um, files can be indexed when they're when protected files are, are stored in OneDrive and SharePoint. I mean, that's that's a huge uh, advance forward. Um, things get a lot more difficult when you have a huge corpus of information to deal with. Uh, and, and Microsoft will tell you that some of their e-discovery e investigations have involved literally millions of emails and millions of documents. And uh, at that point, you, you get uh, into the scenario of looking for a needle in a haystack. And, mm -hmm. and that's where the advanced e-discovery, advanced compliance stuff comes into, into it. Um, so yeah, you can get it. You can get it done, but it depends on the actions of the participants. It depends on the applications they use, and depends whether or not that application data is indexed. For example, if two people get together on a Teams call and use whiteboard to note details of uh, a potential fraud, all bets are off. Whiteboard data is not indexed. It's not discoverable. Yeah, it's not. Well, sure. I mean, even if, if you and I have a conversation on Teams uh, and, I'm, and we're using the mobile client and I leave you a Teams memo, a voice memo, mm. yeah, the, only, the only indication that we had that conversation is a, a note that we were on a call together, but there's absolutely zero information logged about that voice memo. Right, so there there are gaps, and people will find gaps. Um, but if you're lucky, and people used some of these basic communication medium to 
to communicate, then they will be found. If you're unlucky and they've used one of the gaps, or they there's just such a volume of information to go through. We're we're now ten years into the Office 365 journey, so the amount of documents, the amount of email, the amount of Teams messages, the amount of videos that are now piling up inside Office 365 is huge. It's it's the way Microsoft assures itself of customer retention. So much data is there. So much data is interconnected that moving it to any other platform, where's it going to go? But to come to come back to your point, yeah, the, the basic e-discovery, you can get a lot of work done with the basic e-discovery. If you understand how it works and you understand how Office 365 works and, and you have some intelligence about how people might have communicated, because like anything else, it's, it, this e-discovery is a lot about detective work. You're trying to figure out what people might have done wrong. Now, hmm. if you go up to E5 and you get some uh, hints with something like communications compliance, you might pick up a problem, which then leads you to a certain place where you say, I need to go and check this out. Then that becomes easier. But if you're prepared to do the legwork, I think uh, the, the basic technology will do uh, do a lot of it. And compared then to... Uh, Martina made a very valid point that uh, some of these ISV, these third-party products, they, an ISV product can only survive if it has a unique selling point, if it mm. fills a gap. Mm. So all of these third-party products fill gaps that are left by the standard Microsoft technology. If they didn't, then you wouldn't use them. They wouldn't be able to survive. So there are going to be times when an ISV product will be absolutely the right solution for a particular problem. But the big problem you always have with ISV products is getting the data to them. Because remember that uh, Microsoft 365, all its e-discovery and compliance technology is built on top of Microsoft search indexes, which cover pretty well as much data as Microsoft can get into it through the substrate. You know, once mm. data is available to the substrate, it's going to be indexed, it's going to be discoverable, it's going to be uh, findable, it, we're good to go. But getting that data and making that available to a third party e-discovery technology is pretty easy for a demo. So when you're walking around one of the, the show floors at Ignite or something like that, hey, it'll all work. But mm. if you're suddenly saying, oh, I need to get all that information for, let's say, 20,000 mailboxes, 20,000 OneDrive accounts, and 4,000 SharePoint sites, and a whole bunch of team stuff over there. And all of a sudden, it's like, that's a big job of work to do before I can even begin the task of searching. So, hmm. uh, you know, before you get into any sort of, uh, let's plunge into e-discovery done with an ISV product, it's a bit of a balancing act to, to figure out can I get a, I get a 90% coverage with the basic stuff? In which case, that might be enough. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these e-discovery uh, investigations, it's about turning up enough evidence to prove that something is there to hand over to somebody more experienced, like a lawyer, like the police, uh, or, or somebody more experienced at doing e-discovery. E 
so if you could do a 90% job to get you to that point, then do you need that ISP capability? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Every every one of these cases is different. Sorry for the long answer. Hey, you know. And this is also perfect to the previous point because if you might wait till the Microsoft solution is perfect, mm. you probably wait forever. Mm. Imagine that. Mm. So it, it will always be a gap filling process because we are moving forward and we always have new requirements and new situations. And I think Microsoft is pretty much in the same boat as we all are. We learn every day and we can't know everything and we do not know all demands our customers have. So hmm. maybe this is the, the main point. I think that there's a, more data uh, to be indexed every day as well. Remember that, you oh, know, every day there's a, another yes. layer of data. Yes. yes. And, and there's a, a victim of its own success type of thing where um, since there is nowhere else to go and there are so many modalities and, and so many ways of generating data that there are new ways of, of interacting with that data as well that require a, a new type of search. And the, um, the amount of data and the types of data and the types of transactions become more complex yep. from a search point of view. Yeah. And Microsoft has a huge advantage here because it understands the information. I mean, if you look, for example, about how uh, they're dealing with uh, Teams meeting recordings, right? You know, they've announced that they're going to take transcripts for Teams meeting recordings, and you're going to be able to do searching against those meeting recordings. Well, how does that happen? As it, as it turns out, it's quite complex. You've got, as people are speaking during uh, a Teams meeting, that information is being captured. Where is it being captured? It's actually being captured in the Exchange mailbox of users. There's a, a hidden folder where there is this transcript JSON blob of all the spoken text during a meeting. I, I kid you not. This is exactly <laughs> the way it works. Right. But because it's in an Exchange mailbox, it's indexed. Hmm. And it becomes e-discoverable. But you've got you've also got this thing that you want to have live captions for the one for the team meeting recordings which are stored in OneDrive. So in fact, behind the scenes, a background process copies the information out of Exchange Online, brings it into a hidden index in OneDrive, and then does this reconciliation against the different segments of the video so that you have the closed captioning and the transcript available when you're watching the, 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 uh, the uh, video. And in fact, it's that index which turns up in Microsoft Search. So it's like all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. But the point is, is that Microsoft knows how to do this because they're in control of all of the moving parts. And that's, that's the way they can take on these new uh, new uh, ways of recording information like videos of Teams meeting recording to say, okay, we can make these e-discoverable. Bang, there you have it. And that's a unique selling point then for Microsoft because you can imagine how, how is a third party going to do this? They're going to have to come up with their own way of adjusting all of those meeting recordings out of OneDrive and then go and generating all of the captions and spoken text and then put that in their index and making it searchable. It's just 
uh, interesting. It's a it's it's a it's a complex computer challenge, uh, so yeah. to speak. You know, but it's fun. You, fun you games. When you look at all that data that they have, right? Naturally, we would move to the next level of progression here, and that would be how do we make that data work for you, right? So how do we then take all of those conversations with those people? How do we take the people interacting with Office 365 and then give it back to the business? Which I guess brings me to the next controversial question. Microsoft Viva, right? I mean, ideally, we are looking at that information and we are doing something with it when you think about it just automatically. I mean, whether I'm incredibly stressed and I need some headspace or whatever the case may be is, um, you know, Viva's obviously that attempt to utilize those different moving parts to sort of get them to something that you can do with, right? Or, you know, it, perhaps maybe that's where Insights and Delve came from in the first place, right? And do you think that they've done it the right way is the question, Tony. First off, there's some interesting technology in Viva. Um, there's definitely interesting technology in Viva Topics, which is built on a Microsoft research project called uh, Project Alexandria. And, and uh, it was going to be in Cortex, and then they managed to ship it as an actual product. Um, I think topics will become more interesting as the information which is included in its knowledge network is surfaced in more applications. Uh, it's still pretty limited, uh, but I'm looking forward to that. I just think it's expensive. I mean, six bucks a month per user for topics is ridiculous, but there you have it. Um, if I look at the other one, Insights, I don't really get much value out of Insights. Uh, I, I never really have got much value out of Insights, but I, I suspect I'm not the target, uh, target person. Uh, Viva Learning, yeah, I think it's a good way, you know, you're going to have to be able to deliver education to, to users in some way, shape, or form. They might as well get it through Teams. Uh, I've been in many large corporations that and was forced to take compulsory training on this, that, the other thing, anything from health and security to uh, whatever, you know, how to, how to be a good corporate citizen. So if I was going to get that sort of stuff delivered through a website or get it delivered to Teams, Team seems a good enough place to go. And Viva Connections, I just think it's just another way of packaging uh, up SharePoint. I, I don't think it's anything particularly awe-inspiring. So it's a, it's a kind of a curate's egg of technology. The really interesting stuff is in, uh, is in topics. The stuff that people will probably use day, in, day out is in learning. Insights will float the boat of some people. And Connections, I, I, I really just can't get excited about because there are so many ways, different ways of the same job. So it's like anything else. Microsoft has got this giant collection of software. It's got all of the APIs. It's got all of the connections. And it made this employee engagement platform come alive. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, that, that's going to be the market. Uh, uh, we'll make that decision. Um, but I, from a technology point of view, the only thing that really gave, uh, made me excited in any way, shape, or form was uh, topics. And it's too and expensive. For you, Martina, what problems has Viva solved for you? So which problems has it solved? So I, 
when I look at, at Viva from when I get to work with clients and they said, I want an employee app which offers different and selected groups of team members, selected information, news, information about the menu, information about benefits, and we are operating in a worldwide level. There are currently a lot of employee apps in the market already. And I think this was one of the questions why we were connections was built in to have a solution for, for that kind of requirements from people that they said, I have a lot of frontline workers. They are not included in our organization. They are the second part company in our company and we want to include them and give them a voice and talk with them. Then Viva Connections brings a huge benefit for that kind of organizations. And I see that when I work with customers who are looking at Viva Connections and they said, okay, I, I need one single app. And as we discussed before, so Teams will be the new Outlook client or it will survive together with the Outlook client because the user will have two clients. It will be Teams and Outlook. And those are the two clients a user will work in the end. And then it's really beneficial to have employee apps included into Microsoft Teams. Insights from my perspective can help people to learn about their working behaviors so that they can learn, okay, it's, it's not good to have no quiet days, to work day and night, to work outside of my working hours and so on. And there are different types of people working in organizations. We, we talk a lot of diversity. We talk a lot about mental health and stuff like that. And I think inside, if you look at it, at it and if it's helpful to use Headspace, then do it before you get a burnout or anything else. So it, it might not be for everyone, but it could be very beneficial for others. And also what, what I see with, with insights, it also brings kind of a cultural change that you see, um, I will bring my mental health issues into the organization as well, probably. And I, I will have a tool which helps me to organize my day, to book my focus time and so on. So it can be really helpful. Topics is will have a very bright future because knowledge management is still unsolved everywhere. I do not know any organization who says, we have done it, everything. We know everything. We have our corporate wiki and all our knowledge is collected there. So topics can bring a lot of benefit to find information faster and, and to help people onboard it. It comes with the price tag. And I had a lot of discussion about licensing and I'm not into that. I do not earn money from licenses and I do not care. I think it's a valid point to put a price tag on knowledge. And if you calculate it that way, it's 60 bucks per year. So if a tool which helps me to organize my knowledge management per user, 60 bucks, it's, it's not, yeah, 
rate it whatever you want. If it's easier for you to collect everything and do manual searches, it's, it's good as well. What I do not like about topics is that they started the pricing that early because living in a German-speaking country and then in a German-speaking region, it makes no sense for us because German is not here yet. So why publish a product um, or put it on GA if you do not have enough information for doing that? And yeah. Viva Learning, to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> I think what also be cool is if you could like sort of customize what it is that you were looking for, right? Yeah. So like not necessarily just focus time or just headspace, but we could add wine in there, right? So yeah. <laughs> make sure that your employees are at least getting two glasses a week because you know it lowers cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I'm old enough, then when you talk about new hires, you bring them a printed out map and said, this is all you need to, to know about our organization. This is where you get your vacation, the menus, your badge, and so on. And you can use that kind of employee apps for providing that information. Sorry, Tony, go yeah. on. No, 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 no. I was just saying the, the, that was a very powerful insight about the the wine. But um, one thing, I, one thing, of course, about insights that um, that I've always had a complaint about is that it really does not take into account any of the knowledge generation activities that people get into. For example, if you spend an hour or two working on uh, an article. Wine. Or a, a white, yeah, about wine, yeah, about the, the, the finer points of, of Cape Reds, for example. <laughs> uh, that is just not captured in any insight. As far as insight is concerned, you were doing nothing. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, I've, I've made this point to the insights folks that, you know, couldn't you just, because of the autosave feature that that's going on in these office documents. Could you not even keep a track that somebody is doing something active because you know they're auto saving. Auto saving only happens if they're actually doing something. It might be an indication that they're actually working on a presentation, working on a spreadsheet, working on a document or whatever. And it would give you a yeah. lot more accurate uh, accurate uh, account of their actual uh, work including mm -hmm. interruptions during Teams meetings. Because, uh, you know, if you're on an online meeting like this and you're doing 42 different other things during it, how much of a contribution have you really made during that meeting? So I just, I just think there are too many gaps in insights. It, it, does, it does a great job of dealing with email and meetings and chat and some of those other things. They are gradually consuming more graph signals, which is great. But there's, I don't think you can yet turn around and say, you know, this is an accurate representation of how somebody spends their their daily uh, work activities. Anyway, if if we look at what Viva is doing, one of the things that Viva is doing is is putting in an AI spin on top of the the data that we have in Office 365 and, and giving us back to us and giving us 
hopefully something that makes it sense for us to stay inside Office 365 because I'm using those signals in a way that another platform just can't just because the investment isn't there. So if I, if I look at an alternative email platform or an alternative uh, meeting platform, they only do those things, but because to Tony's earlier point, mm. everything is in that one place, I'm able to create those AI signals and then generate some value that just wasn't there two or three years ago, that that data in itself just didn't exist. So. Mm. Where do we go in terms of generating even more value where, to your point earlier, Tony, there's no one to compete with anymore? Are you asking me what Microsoft should do next? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Buy some, buy some vineyard, maybe? <laughs> so there's a, a point of value here where... We've got the data, and now we're using AI to generate data upon data, right? And at some point in time, that data in itself will become valuable enough as data set that I'll want to be able to do something with it. So if I ever want uh, to leave, how do I take that data with me, or how do I even search that data set? Well, there is an Insights API in the graph, but to come back to that, do you really want to make so much uh, use of this information. After all, there was the terrific Ferrari late last year when Microsoft introduced, well, what was it inside the Microsoft 365 Admin Center, this ability to, to know what your users are doing and be able to dive down deep into yeah. it. And everybody got well bent out of shape. You know, I just don't know, especially with work from home and the mm -hmm. new ways of working that we've all kind of had to get to, to to deal with over the last 80 months or thereabouts. I mean, do you want that level of oversight? Are we going to go back to keystroke managers and monitoring people like that? I, I'm not sure. I, I have the same problem about workplace analytics as well. I just asked myself, yeah, maybe in some places it gives you good, uh, good, good information. In others, maybe, maybe not. Hmm. You know, it's, I'm sure that that's actually, it's very organized. Go on, Chris. Right. I was going to say, I think I'm pretty sure some regions of the world that's actually like not legal to do, right? Like um, uh, perhaps, Martina, your region or, uh, you know, and, and Germany, um, you really can't hmm. be paying that much super attention to your, your, uh, your employees because um, you start crossing some boundaries there that, you know, legally I don't think you're supposed to. So, yeah, not not an expert, but certainly I, I remember things like that from previous projects. Workplace analytics will always be difficult in cultures where you have worker councils and strong privacy concerns against everything third party. So, and I think it's it's probably yeah, Germany, Germany or Austria, Switzerland are. Uh, mostly the examples which are brought up, but I think privacy is a concern in California as well and in other countries as well. So, and it kind of depends and it also, and it still, and it always will be, it depends on the trust you, you have in the data and also in the organizations which handle your data, so. Yeah, to, look, to your point, I think lots of things are concerned in California. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, just a small dig. Uh, Tony, uh, Tony, looks just, like you might have, <laughs> Tony just, looks like you might have a thought on either that or just a closing thought on, on something else. 
<laughs> no, not going there. No. I don't know what he's going on about. <laughs> so he's only a tra he's only a transplanted to the Texas Republic. What would he know? <laughs> but Nick Nick brought brought up an excellent question about what is Microsoft doing next, and I think the next big thing will be AI mm. to 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 have a subset of tools which supports us in making decisions, find information, whatever, and make probably our life easier. So I, I, I would go into that direction and I like that because um, I like to be transparent so they can know everything. They can read my email. Hopefully they answer it as well. Um, so that would be the next feature I'm hoping for. You know, could they answer the email as well? Please? Yes. <laughs> Not only read them. <laughs> Look, I think there's a, a delicate balance here between being able to infer user behavior based on metadata where it becomes intrusive. And we've seen this happen in um, less free societies where mm -hmm. population is, is monitored and uh, done so very successfully just on the basis of uh, cell phone metadata uh, versus actually having to get into the information itself. And at some stage, uh, I think we're going to be dealing with the, the next big privacy challenge of when does the company that's storing my data know too much about me and how do I deal with that? Mm -hmm. You're talking about Google mm -hmm. again, right? <laughs> well, I think Google at least are pretty explicit about this, Tony. You know, they make no bones about the fact that they read your mail and they serve you an ad. And even when they, they tell you that they're not doing it, well, they, they kind of still are. <laughs> but if both Google and Microsoft, with the amount of AI that they have, know things about us that become uncomfortable, where do we go with that? Mm -hmm. Uh, probably to a police cell. So I uh, just, you know, a funny story that I, I, I know I, this week, uh, it was probably this week or over the weekend, there, uh, Jeffrey Snover tweeted um, on Twitter that uh, he was like, um, Amazon probably is the company that knows the most about me and they're advertising uh, or suggesting romance novels <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, he, and so hashtag epic fail. I was like, yeah, that was a paraphrasing, but that was pretty much the, the gist of the tweet, which is which is pretty funny. Um, so this is probably done on purpose just to distract you from, no, no, we are not listening to everything you're yes. saying. <laughs> All right, guys, I want to thank both of you for the time that you've given to us. We, we are getting to the top of the show. And it's been a delight to have both of you on the show with us. So thank you both very much for the time that you've given us. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. No worries. No worries. Hey, everyone. Before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.